The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. It calls itself the world's largest professional network. When LinkedIn was floated on the New York Stock Exchange last week, its share price doubled on the first day. As social media becomes hot property, are analysts right to be warning about another dot-com bubble? Also this week, after the resignation of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, contenders line up to replace him as head of the IMF. Can Europe and France keep its grip on the top job? And what happens when economics goes pop? Joining me in the studio, I've got from our business desk, Andrew Clark and Larry Elliott. From the Bretton Woods Project, which campaigns for reform of the IMF, Pete Chowler. And our technology editor, Charles Arthur, joins us, fittingly enough, on Skype. in those innocent days of the late 1990s when you had to unplug your phone to dial up your internet connection, markets got very excited indeed about almost any company that included .com in its branding. Fortunes were made and lost trading shares in firms that never made a profit and were really never likely to. It was a classic bubble and it took down stock markets across the globe. Well, fast forward to 2011 and once again investors are starting to party like it's 1999. Twitter is said to be worth $10 billion, despite never having made a profit. An offshoot and similarly profit-free tweet deck was sold this week, creating millionaires in East London's Silicon Roundabout. Groupon rejected a $6 billion bid from Google and is expected to float for twice that value later this year. And last week, LinkedIn floated in New York and saw its market value double in a matter of hours. Charles Arthur, we've got you here via a free connection on Skype itself bought by Microsoft for $8.5 billion recently. Are we looking at a second dot-com bubble? I don't think we are quite. The arguments about the price that was paid for Skype and the uh, and about the LinkedIn IPO, uh, I think are two rather separate things. I mean, since, since LinkedIn came up, uh, which was on the, the 19th of May, uh, there's also been an IPO for Yandex, which is a Russian search engine that most people in the US don't know, but which is the biggest search engine in Russia. Shares of that spiked by 55% when uh, when they were released on Tuesday. But I've got to say, I, I don't actually think that this is a tech bubble in the same way as we saw in the sort of 1999-2000 period. Andrew Clark. LinkedIn, when it was floated, went up something like $9 billion on its first day. If you were to do the kind of valuation, what it would be worth if all its shares were floating on the market? That makes it something like 170 times its cash flow, 31 times its revenue for the past 12 months. How can that not be a tech bubble? Well, uh, if you look at that maximum valuation of LinkedIn, by my calculation, is roughly the same as what Marks & Spencer's is valued at. So you've got to consider whether if whether you think in the long term LinkedIn has the potential to make as much money as Marks and Spencer. And one thing, you know, it's not making any money at the moment, but one thing you can say about LinkedIn is it's not just a back of an envelope plan, which is the kind of thing that we saw float uh, in the last 
dot-com boom. LinkedIn has lots and lots of members already, millions of members around the world, most of whom are uh, quite successful professionals and who use it for networking. So there is there is kind of a potential there to make money. Whether it's worth $10 billion is uh, doubtful, though. Charles, what is it that people are actually think they're getting when they when they bind something like LinkedIn or they start salivating over the prospect of Facebook floating? I, I think that they're looking at the, the possibility of long-term cash flow because they reckon that Facebook and LinkedIn aren't going away. I mean, I think that the case for LinkedIn is possibly stronger than actually for Facebook. I think Facebook is one of those things that people use and, and then can go off a bit. So, for example, uh, its growth has slowed very, very substantially in the countries where it was first popular. Whereas for LinkedIn, you can see that there's a there's an, an ongoing business case for it, which is that it links together professionals and it allows them to make connections. And that's something which I don't think is going to go way you know there's always going to be professionals wanting to make connections with other professionals who they've not had another way to to get in touch with um, yeah but charles charles myspace sold itself on the basis that it was a way for teens to get in touch with other teens and for music bands to advertise their wares and no one really talks about myspace nowadays do they no but the problem with with myspace was that it hit a particular generation they got older and then they left it and then there wasn't another generation of teens coming into it now you might argue that there's going to be a new generation of business people who will use a, a different uh, social network but I think the LinkedIn is is establishing itself in uh, quite a quite a subtle way it's been going for a while don't forget and uh, there are no signs of, of it slowing down and I, and I think there's it's got a whole lot more countries that it can that it can penetrate I mean you already see lots of people in India for example starting to use it as a way to make connections to the West. But one thing I find fascinating about LinkedIn is it's actually really, really simple technology. I mean, there's nothing particularly whizzy going on there in perhaps the same way as there is with um, with Facebook's news feed and Facebook's chat and, you know, Facebook's this, that and the other massive array of games. LinkedIn is basically just a whole bunch of CVs that you can browse your way through if you're a headhunter and find someone who appeals to you. It's a, it's a really quite bog standard website. So it... it isn't it, isn't, it the, isn't it the case, though, that at the top of every bubble, just as it's about to prick, there's one deal that people sort of say, raise their eyebrows and say, oh, that looks a bit... And last time it was that, AOL that, that, Time that, Warner. That looks a bit expensive. Yeah. Well, it was AOL Time Warner at the, at the last dot-com boom, and it was, you know, Fred the Shred paying gazillions of pounds Baby. for ABN AMRO. <laughs> and at the time, you can always find a reason. There's always people who are prepared to rationalise it and say, oh, this looks like a good deal. It's got great potential. But actually, LinkedIn is quite a small idea and it's got pretty limited potential for growth I mean it's not going to be as big as Marks and Spencer's is it let's face it I mean it's, it's kind of a niche product for a bunch of professionals well, Marks and Spencer's that, that's, shrinking. that's true but but part of the reason why LinkedIn's shares went so high was because there's far more demand than there were shares to go around people were trying to get to the shares but actually yeah, but not that, in itself, that in itself is kind of indicative of a bubble, bubble mentality, mentality. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Peter you were showing me your new whizzy Android phone outside and telling me how it's changed your life can you do you believe all this hype about LinkedIn Facebook um, I have actually a, a high school friend who works for LinkedIn and I grew up in Silicon Valley so, oh, so I have, you're on friends and family option uh, benefits absolutely so uh, you know you know caveat emptor I have uh, I have uh, I have a vested interest in some of this stuff but I have to say that you know I think the revenue models of some of these websites are really poor. I mean, the idea that they'll, I mean, LinkedIn may have a lot of cachet and there will be a lot of people who use it, I think, and I use it myself, but that doesn't mean it has a good model for raising cash by, for selling things. It just doesn't. And, uh, you know, so I think probably the prospects for it to make long-term revenue are not very good. There, there will be websites who will have better prospects than LinkedIn does because they have a better model for how they can raise revenue. But this is, you know, it, 
Uh, but I'm not yet to call the not ready to yet to call the top of the bubble because I don't think we've seen the kind of crazy IPOs that that you know where my mother worked, which was a little teeny Linux outfit, which all which all of a sudden went to you know three billion overnight when they had no product. So I mean, at least we haven't seen those kind of things yet. Larry, I mean, it- I, I think it's a. Sorry, I think it's just interesting in this context, since you mentioned Skype at the beginning, that people look at the 8.5 billion Microsoft pay for Skype and say, oh dear, that's, that's very bad. I mean, I think actually that's, been a, that's actually a really clever buy by Steve Barmer. The $8.5 billion was doing nothing sitting in its bank account, no point giving it back to the shareholders because that would make no difference to the share price. And they can build it into their mobile platform, which is really where their feature has to be. So I, I don't think that's a sign of a bubble either. Larry, is it possible to is it always the case that we just see bubbles in hindsight just to go back to your example earlier of the two deals which which popped the bubble aol time warning in the case of dot-com bubble and rbs by navy and amro is it always the case that we spot them afterwards or can you see them coming yeah of course you can see them coming i think it's complete rot that you can't spot them coming people did spot the dot-com bubble coming robert schiller famously wrote about irrational exuberance. Greenspan actually used the words irrational exuberance in a speech in 1996 and then did absolutely sweet FA to stop the bubble from carrying on inflating. So people do spot the bubble, just that the people who do are treated like Cassandra wailing from the, the walls of Troy and, and, and roundly trash for daring to come along and uh, try and spoil the party. But actually, yeah, of course you could yeah, of course you could spot that that was a bubble. It had to be a bubble. I mean, Peter's example was you know, just one of very, very many of, of companies which had absolutely no revenue prospects being floated for vast amounts of money and the same happened with the with the subprime crisis i mean that was predicated on the basis that u.s house prices would carry on it wasn't that they would even plateau that in order for that to work they had to carry on rising and rising and rising palpably a bubble charles you get the last word aren't the thoughts of professor victor meldrew there i mean isn't larry elliott basically trying not waking up to the fact that the u.s economy like many other sort of western advanced economies is rebalancing away from old things that we used to like ford say and and balancing towards things like facebook we're moving away from old manufacturing towards social media possibly i should be a big evangelist for this thing but i have to say i i retain a lot of faith in uh, things that you can drop on your foot as the way to to more money um so i think it's indicative that apple makes more money because it sells things you know like iphones than actually than microsoft does in the past quarter it passed it for profits and i i think that um you know that Sure, LinkedIn's got a big valuation at the moment. I think that's going to readjust down, uh, and I, I still tend to tend to put my faith in uh, you know technology. You really can drop on your foot. Well, we'll let you go, Charles. But there's plenty more on this on our website at guardian.co.uk/business. This is the business with Aditya Chakraborty. Well, after the drama of last week's arrest of Dominic Strauss-Kahn, this week the battle begins to replace him at the IMF. Since it was set up in 1946, the International Monetary Fund has had 10 managing directors. All of them have been European and four of them French. So it's probably no surprise that the hot favourite to take over is Christine Lagarde, currently Finance Minister in Nicolas Sarkozy's government. She comes with endorsements from David Cameron, Angela Merkel and Silvia Berlusconi. So who is she? Angelique Chrysaphis is The Guardian's Paris correspondent. Well, Christine Lagarde is a very witty character. She's very much liked on the conference circuit. She's the first woman to become finance minister of any large industrial country. She's incredibly popular. She speaks perfect English. She started out as an intern in Washington for a a Democrat politician. She then went on to become a lawyer for Baker and McKenzie and went up to become chairwoman of Baker and McKenzie in Chicago. So she has an interesting trajectory, which is not really political. She arrived in the Sarkozy government in 2007 and became finance minister almost as a mistake 
mistake when she replaced someone who had to quit. And she's really done incredibly well, Sarkozy would say. He's incredibly proud of her, especially the fact that she ticks all the all the feminist boxes that he fails in other places to tick. Now, she always says that she thinks it's wrong to have too much testosterone in a room, particularly when we're talking about financial markets. And in that sense, she'd be a very interesting head of the IMF. She's got quite a fun sort of CV, in fact, that she was on the National Synchronised Swimming Team when she was in her teens. And she does make a joke about that. And she, she loves to talk about fitness. Now, one big gaffe she did make in France was early on in her career when she said as finance minister that if fuel prices were too high, people should just get on their bikes. This was a bit too Norman, Norman Tebbit-like for France, and it, it didn't go down very well. But she's made up for that since. And the left is quite soft on her, really. She's actually the most popular minister in Sarkozy's government. She's actually the most popular right wing, if you could call her that, um, politician in France, bearing in mind that she's never been elected. She's one of the French ministers who come from civil life. She's never been an elected politician. She tried and failed at that recently on a smaller scale in Paris. She did say that she voted for François Mitterrand in 1981, but she is very much one of Sarkozy's people. Now, the problem with Christine Lagarde, and this is very embarrassing when you think about the legal trouble that Dominique Strauss-Kahn is involved with, is that she is also facing a legal issue in France. Now, the Court of Justice of the Republic, which is the only court in France that is able to investigate ministers, is going to make a decision about whether they're going to take legal action against her just as the decision will be made about who will head up the IMF. This is quite a complicated case, but it's also incredibly interesting, and it's a real soap opera in France. Basically, there's a big tycoon, Bernard Tapie, who's a great character. He used to be the head of Olympic Marseille football team, and he's done time for match-fixing. He's also been done for tax evasion. And he was an, um, a minister, a left-wing minister for François Mitterrand. He then became an actor and a singer and so on. And one of his ventures was to take over as head of the sports giant Adidas, now, he sold Adidas in 1993, and that sale went through with the state-owned, the then state-owned bank, Credit Lyonnais. Tappy said that Credit Lyonnais swindled him, and he basically demanded that they pay him money that they owed him from this deal. Now, because the state was liable for Credit Lyonnais' um, financial shenanigans. This went backwards and forwards for decades with with decisions being made about how much the government, if anything, should pay him back. Now, what Lagarde has done and what she's being investigated over is abuse of power. She decided that this would she'd take this out of the courts bring along three judges and settle it privately. Tappy got a massive astronomical payout of almost 300 million euros. And some people are saying, hang on, that was too much. This was abuse of power. It should have gone through the courts. And they want to know what happened and whether Lagarde really did pull strings there to fix it. A lot of people say Lagarde wasn't at fault, that Sarkozy had pushed her to do this. But still, it's very much hanging over her head. Angelique Chrysaphis there. Peter Chowler. Uh, we've had three of the last five IMF heads have come from France. Do you reckon Christine Lagarde's going to make it four out of six? I think that's the big question everybody's asking. The likelihood is out there. The bookies have put their odds out. So, you know, I'm, I'm not one to question the common wisdom all the time. But I certainly think that there's an opportunity, finally, for us to change this gentleman's agreement, which has reigned for 65 years. And it's about whether the Americans and the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, really step up to the plate and say enough is enough. Okay, we'll come to that in a second. But what direction, from what you've seen of Christine Lagarde so far, what direction do you think should take the fund? We're used to thinking about Strauss-Kahn as being a reasonably, modestly progressive head of the IMF. What about Lagarde? Well, certainly from all indications of how she's been operating economic policy in France, uh, for the last years while she's been the finance minister there, this is going to be a big negative for reform efforts at the fund. She has very orthodox economic views, um, very pro-free market and liberalization of, of all si- kinds of 
you know, from employment regulations to, to trade rules. So she's certainly not going to bring a progressive voice into the institution, nor a reformist one. She clearly comes from a background which is quite status quo oriented and is pitching on the view that we need to be protecting old Europe. So this is really not the way the IMF should be going. And we're, we're looking f- forward perhaps for five years of even worse policies from the IMF. Larry, you wrote a column this week in which you argue quite, quite strongly that Gordon Brown at least ought to be given a hearing for the top job, but you seem to be one of the few people willing to, to support him. Well, I think if you're going to have a European, Gordon would be a more progressive choice than Christine Lagarde. I totally agree with Peter that she's she's quite orthodox and she's actually been one of the hardliners in the Euro debt crisis. And I mean, I find the argument that you, should, you have to have a, a European or Eurozone person running the IMF because of the Eurozone crisis, one of the most fatuous arguments I've ever heard in my life. I mean, no one ever suggested you needed an Asian when the Asian crisis was going on, or a Latin American when the Latin American crisis. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. So I find that the most bizarre argument I've ever heard. And I think that the, uh, I think Brown, I don't think Brown will get it. I mean, I think that Brown has not built bridges with the, the government here. He hasn't even spoken to them about the job, which is obviously a bit of an impediment if you want it. You do need the backing of your own government. Um, but I think he's a more serious candidate if he wanted a European than Lagarde is. And he probably would get more support from the developing countries than Lagarde will get. But he's quite, he's quite well regarded in Africa. And um, he's you know, quite well regarded in countries like China for what he did for the G20 and for the, for the Global Rescue Plan. But I don't think, I don't think Brown's going to get it. I think Lagarde will get the job. And I think it will be deeply regrettable that, that she will get it. Because I think what will happen is if, if the Americans support the Europeans on the fund in return for European support for a World Bank president who's American, which is the traditional arrangement, they've got the votes. They've, got, they've still got the votes inside the IMF to carry the day. And I can't really see why the Americans would want to end that arrangement. And, um, and I think the, the problem for the developing countries is that they've moved from a situation where the Europeans could nominate any old person, no matter how bad they were, and some of them were pretty bad, to the position where now the Europeans know that they can continue to get it, provided they put up a credible candidate, someone who is you know, seen as, as a decent person. So Strauss-Kahn was seen as a credible person. When heavyweight he was a, a heavy, yeah. heavyweight, a heavyweight candidate. Lagarde is seen as a heavyweight candidate, provided the Europeans carry on putting up heavyweight candidates. When is this ever going to change? And, and that's the problem, I think. The developing, developing countries are never going to be able to break this gentleman's agreement all the time the Europeans and the Americans continue to, to operate it along these lines. I agree with Larry to some extent, although I don't think that Gordon Brown was a particularly... I don't think Gordon Brown was the right person to do this job. I do have some sympathy for David Cameron, who might wonder whether he would be end up with a situation where the IMF's managing director kept popping up and criticising austerity programmes within Britain. Well, Deserve. perhaps, but... You know. Deserves the IMF to be on well, his case. <laughs> in fact, that is the IMF's job. The IMF's right. job is to be on the case yeah. of rich countries that are enacting wrong policies. And that's what we're really missing at the IMF for the last decade, is, is a person who's independent of these major member states. And we need somebody who's out there willing to be vocal. To okay, see. okay. So since you've, you've brought this up, give us a couple of other names that we ought to be thinking about instead. So, I mean, I think, unfortunately, Kamal Dervis, who ruled himself out, he was a former finance minister of Turkey, um, would have been an excellent candidate. He probably ruled himself out over some potential sexual indiscretions in his past life. So there seems to be a trait. Seems to be a trait here. Actually, to run Um, a multilateral organization. Yes. 
<laughs> this does seem to be cropping up now and then. Um, but I think there are other possibilities out there. You can think of some people from India, former central bank governor YV Reddy, or the or head of a private bank um, called the, the Central Bank of India. Um, there are also people in um, Singapore. Some people are saying the Singaporean finance minister, though Though I've also heard a lot that he's not really ready. Um, as well as, you know, a, a high-level official in Korea, Il Kong, who might be up for the job and has been involved in economic policy making around the world for the last year when Korea hosted the G20. Okay, so these are all names that you've mentioned that start from Turkey and go further east, from out to India, Singapore, Korea. When is when is the time going to come when we actually have an Asian or an African or Latin American in charge of a multilateral? Is, is, do you think it will it could happen this time around? I think it's, I mean I, I think the odds are against it this time around. But I think what what really is driving this, and it comes back to what something Larry said, is that it's when uh, the Americans realize that it's no longer in their interest to uphold this agreement, which splits up the institutions, and it's actually going to take the American elite to realize that because it may be in the American elite interest, meaning Wall Street, um, Wall Street's interest to have a friendly European voice at the head of the IMF and a friendly American voice at the head of the bank. But when it, when it comes down to American people and when it's what's in their interest about ensuring a cooperative global monetary arrangements and about ensuring that economic policy globally is good for people. And I think the evidence from the last five years is that you need a strong international institution to do that, which is led by somebody who's independent. And actually, American people on the high street, as we would call it here in Britain, are actually in need of someone who will discipline banks, who will discipline governments, who go wayward, who go for massive deregulation when it's going to hurt them. And now all of the ordinary citizens in America, as well as here in Europe, are paying for the failures of the IMF and for their governments. And when they start to realize and demand from their governments that they realize that this carve-up of amongst elites and people who are friendly to financial interests is not in their interest, then we might start seeing some change. It's and worth pointing out, isn't it, that the, um, the developing world has had, a, has had a lock on the United Nations job for quite some time. <laughs> so the general of the United Nations has come from the developing world ever since I can remember. So isn't it fair the Europeans should have something? Well, I think we should have open processes for all of it. And this is all part of a carve-up, right? So you've always had a you know, head of a European at the IMF, an American at the bank, and then you've had always a Japanese person in the second, third position at the IMF, an American at the second position at the IMF, a Japanese at the head of the ADB. Uh, this is an absurd system altogether. And so I think it's time I, to do I, away I, with I it completely. I think the problem is that we're looking at this from the wrong end of the pipe. We should be saying, what do we want to do with the fund? What's wrong with the fund? How does the fund need to be reformed? How can the fund better be prepared for the next financial crisis? Rather than, you know, which country is going to get it or which block of country is going to get it? I think we, you know, we need to write a job description for the, for the IMF and say who is the best person to meet. I mean, I don't think, Christina goes, I don't think some of the people who have been floated from the developing world either. I mean, someone said to me last week, you know, just because someone wears a turban doesn't make them a Keynesian. And there's something, there's something in that, that the, if, we, if it was, you know, if, if you did choose someone from the developing world, Carstens has been co- talked about from Mexico, you know, he, I, I think he'd be quite e- even more right wing than, than Christine Lagarde. I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of people from the developing world have done their PhDs at Chicago 
Chicago and are well versed in Milton Friedman. You know, and 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 they wouldn't necessarily be that progressive either. So I think what we really need to start to do from the outset is say, what is the fund there for? What what are its failings? How can we remedy them? And who is the best person to do that? And I think we're actually approaching this in exactly the wrong way. I mean, you know, the idea that the European can just nominate someone, it seems to me to be completely and utterly the, the wrong way of going about running the IMF, which has you know, got a pivotal role in, in, in the post-crisis world. Surely one of the key considerations should be where's the money coming from? But increasingly, the money is coming from the developing world. Yeah, I mean, the money is coming. Well, the money is coming. Come from on, in, a, in absolute terms, it doesn't come from. from no, Asia. but Peter's, Peter's point about the Americans. The Americans know full well. If you look at what where, where their business is going, increasingly where their policy, uh, where their policy effort is going, Washington increasingly looks to the Pacific and to the Asian market rather than to the European market. And eventually, it will work out. Actually, I think that you know it might be worth courting that market and the, po- the, the the political elite in that country in those countries rather than in Europe. I mean, that's the that's the reality. American the American economy is increasingly orientated westwards across the Pacific rather than eastwards across the Atlantic. And let's be honest, the IMF is a reserve fund. It's there to, to bolster reserves for other countries using the reserves of countries with who are rich in reserves. And who is rich in reserves? It's Asia. And if we were under some mistaken impression that the Europeans are contributing money to the fund, that's only because they did in the past and they refuse to let anybody else do it now. If you had an open, if you had an IPO for the IMF, guess who would be buying 90% of the shares? It would be China. So, you know, this, this is a, a false argument that the, the Europeans are the ones who are contributing the money. Well, as the IMF ponders its future, the economic battles of the past are still being played out. And they're being aired in some interesting arenas. John Maynard Keynes wrote the book on modern macro. The man you need when the economy's off track. Depression, recession, now your question's in session. Have a seat and I'll school you in one simple lesson. The world of hip-hop may take as its primary concerns complex issues such as love triangles, otherwise known as booty calls, the arms trade, otherwise known as AKs, and drugs. But now there's some new players in town. Their beef can be traced back to the early 20th century and the battle of ideas between the free marketeer Friedrich Hayek and the interventionist John Maynard Keynes. What you're hearing is the latest YouTube hits co-created by economics professor Russ Roberts in association with a bunch of songwriters and rappers. Earlier I spoke to Russ and asked him to explain his choice of hip-hop as a medium for economics. Well, I think they're great works in economics scream out for rap treatment, don't you? I mean, everybody was asking, where's the Keynes and Hayek rap video? Uh, but more seriously, we wanted to put it in a, put the ideas of Keynes and Hayek into a format that would be both accessible and we hoped entertaining. Perfectly fine. Have a look, the Great Recession ended back in 09. I deserve credit, things would have been worse. All the estimates prove it. I'll quote chapter and verse. Econometricians, they're ever so pious. Are they doing real science or confirming their bias? Their Keynesian models are tidy and neat, but that top-down approach is a fatal conceit. It had its own challenges. Neither of us, uh, John Popola and I had never written a rap song before, so it was quite an adventure to do it once. The second time was was a little bit easier, but it's it's it was both fun and challenging. First one we did was called Fear the Boom and Bust, and the second one is called The Fight of the Century. We did the first one really because of the situation of the world economy. We thought it it was a time to explore how we got in the mess, and Keynes and Hayek had very different perspectives. So that's what we were really responding to. And then the second one grew out of the fact that 
how do we get out of the mess? Once we're in it, Keynesians tend to emphasize spending and Hayekians tend to emphasize that that's not going to work and we need to be uh, more responsible about the future and have a more steady hand on the teller rather than a more erratic one. And I think uh, that's really what encouraged us to do these two uh, rap videos. So what would you do to help those unemployed? This is the question you seem to avoid. When we're in a mess, would you have us just wait doing nothing until markets equilibrate? I don't want to do nothing. There's plenty to do. The question I ponder is who plans for whom? Do I plan for myself or leave it to you? I want plans by the many, not by the few. Let's not repeat what created our troubles. I want real not a series of bubbles. Stop a lot of views, as you know, over 2 million for the first one and over 750,000 now for the second one. The most satisfying response has been in the classroom and among young people in particular. Uh, high school students have seen it and contacted me. College students, of course, have seen it. Uh, its teachers are using it as sort of a capstone for a long semester or year of, of debate over these economic issues. My favorite response was the father who told me that his fifth grade son uh, had learned the, the, the lyrics by heart and he overheard his son telling his fifth grade classmate, dude, don't you know anything about Austrian economics? And I thought, that's, we made it. That's, that's very good. Jobs are a means, not the ends in themselves. People work to live better, to put food on the shelves. Real growth means production of what people demand. That's entrepreneurship, not your central plan. My solution is simple and easy to handle. It's spending that matters. Why is that such a scandal? Money sloshes through the pipes and the sluices, revitalizing the economy's juices. It's just like an engine that's stalled and gone dark. To bring it to life, we need a quick spark. Spending's the lifeblood that gets the flow going. Where it goes doesn't matter. Just get spending flow. You see slack in some sectors as a general glut, but some sectors are healthy, only some in a rut. So spending's not free, that's the heart of the matter. Get Russ Roberts there. Larry Elliott, do you think it's the time to fuse academic economics with hip-hop has finally come? Oh, I think it's absolutely splendid. I think both Keynes and Hayek would have probably gone out and spent their hard-earned pounds, shillings and pence as it was in those days on, on, on one, of these, one of these 45s um, or 78s as they probably were then. I mean, I think Keynes would have said, look, you know, we're going to have loads more leisure time. He wrote this famous essay about how we're all going to work 15 hours a week and we devote our time to writing symphonies and rap records and doing doing great art and Hayek would have said you know this is the market at work you know the, the, obviously there's a demand for this out there so you know that's great it's, it's, this is the price mechanism well they would have been absolutely thrilled by it I think. Andrew it's a bit cheesy isn't it? It's a little bit cheesy but I th- there does seem to be a trend here I seem to remember some bin man from the north of England wrote a rap recently about GP fund holding and protest at government's health reforms I was just thinking though that um, <laughs> given the state of European economies I think it would be a certain to all mankind if this was entered into the Eurovision Song Contest for maximum European audience. The GP fund holding one went Lansley is a tosser, a tosser, a tosser. I didn't hear anything quite as catchy in this one. Yeah, true. He did manage to rhyme equilibriate in this one. <laughs> I thought that was quite equilibriate. Yes, very nice. I mean, certainly I would, I would love it if this were uh, being 
pushed out there with free market disciplines and being bought up by lots of people. Unfortunately, it's probably been funded uh, a little bit less than the free market oriented uh, approach. But I, I think seriously, there is a, a, a great trend here of of melding new technologies and video online with political gains and political purposes. And, and for those of you who know um, the story of Stuff, which is famously done by Annie Leonard, she's in a, a great video. And there's been a, a number of uh, spin-offs and, and follow-ups to that, which has been about explaining the real issues around economics and environmental economics, particularly to ordinary people. And it's had millions of views as well uh, on the internet. So I think this is a great medium for social activists. And I think we need to find a way to do more of it. Is it, is it supply-led? Is it people who think, actually, I want to put this to music and put, it, put something on YouTube? Or is it responding to a great hunger to find out more about these issues? Oh, I think it's definitely supply-led so far. It's a bunch of ideologues and, and people who want to push their ideas out um, and then are finding ways to do it. I don't hear that many you know, Don's saying, actually, what we really need is to put Hayek and Keynes to a rap record. In order, you know, I, think, I think it's definitely supply-led, but you know, I think it's really good but if we can push it out there and if we can get more young people listening to this as, as was indicated in your interview then it's a great way to stimulate interest in the political economy issues that are really driving our world right now andrew why is it rap that gets used as a medium to do this stuff why is it never you know indie indie kids with jangly rickenbackers uh i think that's a very good question I suppose I suppose rap is the most word-driven medium, isn't it? But per, I mean, perhaps we could perhaps we could invent a little breakdance to go with this. And, it's not uh, true. I mean, that's traditionally not true. I mean, rock music often had a real political content. I mean, think about you know, won't get fooled again and you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So I think think of Dylan's seventieth birthday this week. You know, don't need a weather man to know which way the wind blows. I mean, there's an awful lot of politics in traditional rock. I mean, it's just it's it's a, it's a new and different way of doing it. I think meet rap. the new boss, same as the old boss, could be very appropriately IMF. I reckon. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was 1971, but I mean, it's the same now in 2011, isn't it? Well, that's all we've got time for this week. You can find a link to Russ's song on our podcast page, where you can also leave your comments about this week's programme. That's at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. But for now, my thanks to Larry Elliott, Andrew Clark, Peter Chowler, Angelique Chrysaphis and Russ Roberts. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.